Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different women come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it impacts our lives. This summer, we are doing a special three-part series based on the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. I am Beth Benson, and joining me for this summer series are Vanessa Hawkins, Amber Barrett, and Morgan Lewick. Ladies, let's take a minute to answer our summer something to talk about question of the day, which is, what is your favorite type of book to read in the summer? Normally, I'm a memoir kind of girl. I like memoirs and I like biographies, but I've got some unfinished business with The Warmth of Other Suns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I started, I'm about halfway through it, and I've gotten interrupted by other things, you know, schoolwork, ministry stuff. But I fully intend to go back to finish The Warmth of Other Suns. Yeah, that's worth going back to for sure. And you could read it in the sun because it's summertime. In the sun. <laughs> there you go. I don't think that's what she was getting out with that title. <laughs> maybe but not. Maybe not. No, maybe not. Uh, let's see. Summer reading. I tend to think about reading on the beach when I think summer reading. I guess I just think sunshine beach. And if I'm on the beach, I want something that captivates my interest but doesn't require too much brain power. So that could be a good mystery or something funny and poignant. And I do like a good memoir. Mm-hmm. Memoirs are good for the beaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm like you. I. I kind of like something uh, funny and poignant, um, but I, I will say I I thought a while back that I should start reading more fiction because I think it would be more lighthearted, and I'm a terrible fiction reader <laughs> because I sit down to read it, and then I'm like, why am I reading this? I don't, I know, I, it's, it's a shame. So there have mm. been some things that I like to read fiction-wise, anything by C.S. Lewis, um, some of the, um, oh, what are they called? Anyway, um, Gentle and Lowly has been wonderful because mm-hmm. it's like, it's truth, but it's uh, been a real bomb to my soul. So it's very poignant, but it's almost feels like light reading because yeah. it's very um, restorative. Mm-hmm. So I think in, anything restorative, I'm also currently reading a book called Into the Silent Land by Martin Laird. And that's been really captivating and uh, restorative as well. So I'll try fiction again. Mm-hmm. I need good titles. I can give you some good fiction titles. <laughs> See, I have to read fiction in order to escape my own mind. Like, and sometimes if it's just something that's that I have to think about or apply or theology or whatever, but fiction just lets you taste life, mm-hmm. life in, in other rooms. So I do like that. I have, I got some good. Yeah, I would I would like to mm-hmm. add that to my reading because I feel like it's good for the creative mind. Yes, yes. Yeah, um, definitely. But maybe I just have chosen the wrong books. <laughs> well, I go through phases with books phases where I really like nonfiction phases where I like mysteries or science um, science fiction fantasy Mm -hmm. right now I'm in a phase where I really like um, Reese Witherspoon has a book club and she has books that she releases onto that I'm in a big phase of liking her books right now so it's nice because sometimes I get overwhelmed with all the books that there are and so I like it because those suggestions tend to help me pick books and they're all books by female authors and they focus on female characters. Mm-hmm. So I'm anticipating since that's the phase I'm in. I think that's what is going to be my main focus of this summer when I come, when it comes to reading. Well, this is a part two of our series on Gentle and Lowly. And today we're going to talk about chapters 9 through 16 of Ortland's book. Um, he opens up this section by talking about Jesus as our advocate 
he says that Jesus aligns himself with us. Um, this is mentioned in 1 John 2, 1. That's a pivotal verse um, that he talks about in this section. And that verse says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I think that's just so interesting to think about. Christ as our advocate. Ortland talks about this more. He says, to be allied with an advocate, one who came and sought me out rather than waiting for me to come to him, one who is righteous in all the ways I am not. This is calm and confidence before the Father. And that gets to some of the ideas that we had talked about in, in our last episode that he's waiting for us to come to him. But I love how he talks about he is righteous in all the ways I am not. And again, Ortland writes, but his advocacy on our behalf rises higher than our sins. His advocacy speaks louder than our failures. All is taken care of. All is taken care of. I mean, there's not, we don't have to feel the burden of that. We don't have to worry about that. And that I think is a really transforming idea. So Morgan and Vanessa, if you guys will tell me, how does the idea of having Jesus as an advocate for you make you feel and how does it change your thoughts or actions i truly have never pondered the advocacy of jesus um this was so helpful for me to talk about i have often uh pondered the priestly nature of christ um who intercedes but not jesus as our advocate who aligns with us and stands to plead for us in in our times of trouble or sin um so i think Christ as my priest gives me confidence to approach the throne of grace, um, but Jesus as my advocate makes me brave enough to face the world, mm-hmm. knowing that I, he's with me, he's aligned with me, and should I falter or fail, he's going to stand up for me, that I don't have to be afraid going through life under the watchful eye of our Father in heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that idea that he is keeping his eye on you and that you don't have to be afraid. Mm -hmm. That really resonates with me, too. I think most immediately it challenges me in how I speak to myself. Mm -hmm. Because when I consider um, how I cannot be kind to myself sometimes and that I have a perfect Savior who has every right not to advocate for me, yet he does. Uh, He speaks up for me, and then he's also gentle and kind to me. It reminds me that um, I'm his and it sets a model for how I am to speak to myself. But mm-hmm. I think it also helps me quickly recognize the voice of the accuser mm-hmm. who wants me to believe that my identity lies in what I've done or, mm-hmm. or uh, what I've gone through. And he just he desires to give me an identity of shame that rivals my identity in Christ. And so remembering Jesus' advocacy reminds me to hear Jesus saying, and I always remind, imagine him saying and, remi- and am reminded of him saying, Um, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mm -hmm. And when the enemy wants to point to me what I've done, you know, and Mm -hmm. to say that I'm the sum of the the bad things I've done, I'm reminded of an advocate that points me to his finished work and my identity in him. Yeah, and I think it's that's just a wonderful thing that he brings in. And I love, I love that he moves from this idea of the Ortland moves from this idea of Christ as an advocate to the heart um, of God and that his gentle heart adorns him with beauty. That's another thing that I haven't spent much time contemplating. Um, in Matthew 10, 3, 37, it says, 
whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. So Christ loves with a greater love than we could ever receive Mm -hmm. from our friends and family. And we are drawn to the beauty of his heart and we are shocked to find it so welcoming. Mm -hmm. And that's a reading of that verse that I had never, and like I never heard of that that way before. Um, But Orland says, it is a heart that walks into the bright meadow of the felt love of God. It is a heart that drew the despised and forsaken to his feet in self-abandoning hope. It is a heart of perfect balance and proportion, never overreacting, never excusing, never lashing out. It is a heart that throbs with, the de- with desire for the destitute. It is a heart that is gentle and lowly. Mm-hmm. I am... I'm drawn to to poetry and poetic words, and I love that these words that he just used are such a beautiful way of describing Christ's beautiful heart. Um, so before reading this book, that's not something that I had spent a lot of time dwelling on. So Amber and Vanessa, what about you guys? Before reading this book, had you ever thought about the enchanting beauty of Christ's heart? Well, when I read... Orland's little section on this, and he was using words like enchanting and alluring. Mm-hmm. I'll confess that they're not words that I'm naturally drawn mm-hmm. drawn to. Mm-hmm. When I think about romancing, he says, romance the heart of Christ. And I thought to myself, what? <laughs> How do I do that? <laughs> and I'm not really sure I feel comfortable with that phrase, not because I think it's a wrong phrase. I mm-hmm. don't. But it, 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 not that that phrase in particular, but sometimes those words can seem cheesy to me or uncomfortable or foreign. Mm -hmm. And they probably make me uncomfortable for reasons I'm not even aware of. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes that that might be the case, particularly when I'm trying to imagine or create something that speaks to romance other than my actual experience. For example, if a good friend of mine goes out on a date and she comes back and she says, oh, we had just the most romantic date. We dressed up. I wore my high heels. I got my hair done. We went to this gorgeous restaurant. We ate all this wonderful food. The band was playing in the background, and then we did ballroom dancing. It was so romantic. Now, I could hear that and think, okay, my husband and I, we need some romance in our life. <laughs> we should go out to dinner, dress up, wear high heels, and go ballroom dancing. Well, the problem is that I don't like any of those things (laughs) and neither does my husband. Mm -hmm. So if we were going to go on a date, it would probably include uh, something like food trucks, casual clothes and a round of disc golf at sunset. And the reason I think about that is, is sometimes I could want to push myself to experience the romance of Jesus's heart in a way that I hear other people expressing it. But the wonderful thing about romance is it's very particular to every relationship. And the relationship that Christ has with me, he makes that unique to me because he is a person who comes into relationship with me. It's not something that I'm trying to copy from somebody else. And that was just important for me to realize and think about it. That there's not just a cookie cutter way for me to experience the romance of, of Christ. In fact, if I'm trying to go cookie cutter, it's probably an implication that I'm not really believing or engaging the fact that Christ is a person who is interacting with me in relationship. So I thought about that. And I will say though, that like every good romance, it takes time Mm -hmm. and it takes thought. And that whole idea of sitting down and contemplating and being 
in his presence and contemplating his heart and his attributes, just like a lot of things, it can get pushed out in the busyness mm-hmm. of life. And, and I miss that when I don't make time for that. I had thought about it, but I hadn't thought about it fully. And I think I realized that sometimes the way that I live life is fast paced enough. It doesn't necessarily give the time for contemplation. I would like it to. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. In fact, our, our family um, at family dinner not too long ago, we were thinking along these terms as far as thinking of the language of romantic pursuit and talking about Christ and how unsettling that can feel. And so we were just thinking through why that feels unsettling. And so as we talked about it, we began considering songs that use that language. And one of them uh, uh, was Reckless Love by Corey Asbury. The lyrics say, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. And I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It has a kind of reckless abandon. I mean, you hear the word that we associate with romantic pursuit. And then the other one, How He Loves Us by David Crowder. Um, he is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory. And I just, and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. And then the, the scandalous verse that has caused many people grief and heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss. And mm-hmm. my heart turns violently inside my chest. Mm-hmm. And so just that whole language. And I hear that the original wording was like a sloppy wet kiss and people really had a problem with that Mm -hmm. but the lord's pursuit of us and his sacrificial love for us and even our worship songs i've heard um, coined as uh, singing a love song to the Mm -hmm. lord they're all the elements of an epic love story and just the very act of a husband and wife coming together in sexual union in marriage represents and affirms the lord's covenant with the church his bride and so it is indeed an outflow of his beauty, yet I think it's one for which we struggle to find language for. Definitely. And I think, well, I think what's something that you guys are both touching on is how, oh, on what he's saying, it should be a felt love, which kind of, in my mind, would bring about an emotional response. And so it's always been really easy for me to forget that Christ also had emotions and right. he also experienced mm-hmm. the same emotions that I do. Um, not in the same way he experienced them in a perfect way, but um, John eleven thirty three talks about this. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. So that focus on, on him being greatly moved. Um, Ortley reminds us that Jesus, he felt those same range of emotions that we do from, from anger to compassion but without the taint of sin. He writes, Christ got angry and still gets angry, for he is the perfect human who loves too much to remain indifferent. And this righteous anger reflects his heart, his tender compassion. And Ortland gives this example in the book of a time that he um, he was traveling in another country and he saw a man who had leprosy and he was moved with compassion, but it was only a little bit, like it was limited and it, it never, it was definitely not the full breadth and he was able to not do, I don't think he did anything about it. He just moved on. And I loved that Ortland clarified that 
when Christ feels that way, he loves too much to remain indifferent. And I think as someone who's always struggled with those thoughts of, of how does Christ experience emotions and what was that like for him? And I used to be more prone to think that the emotions I experienced were bad and that they were sinful. Mm. So Morgan, I'm really interested to hear from you, especially as someone who is in a counseling position. How does this look into the emotional life of Christ change the way that we should view our own emotions and what can we learn from his refusal to remain indifferent? I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) This is something that I think about every day uh, in my work, but also just in my life and in my walk, how God created man in the beginning in his image. He said, in the image of God, I create them. We are created in the image of the triune God, and Christ is the embodiment of that perfect triune God in human form. Uh, He carries within himself a full range of emotions that God possesses, Mm. um, and we're made in his image to reflect that image. So looking at the person of Jesus is to kind of look in the mirror um, and see what we are to be in our perfect um, fullness one day. So that's the image that we're creating. And so to deny our emotions um, as inconvenient, inappropriate, sinful, is really to deny who we are meant to be in Christ, Mm -hmm. that reflection of him as a reflection of light, you know, shining like Mm -hmm. stars in the universe, the image of Christ. Um, So Jesus' embodiment of that full range of emotions gives us that picture of what our fallen emotions are meant to be when sanctified by the Holy Spirit. I really kind of, uh, as you were talking, was thinking um, that the picture of Christ when he came to the Jews after Lazarus had died, and it said he was deeply troubled in spirit. Um, And I think Ortland kind of picks that apart and tells us, um, opens that up for us to say that it was like his guts were churning within him. The compa- that word compassion. He was deeply troubled in his spirit. And I think we deny our emotions partly because when we feel that, like for ourselves, when we feel that deep churning of emotions for us in, within our own self, for our own suffering, or for our own sin, we don't like it. <laughs> we're like, nope, don't have time for that. That's feels bad it must be bad i don't think i can survive this mm-hmm. is is kind of that we have this almost fight or flight response to push it off um but i think if we really and I, and i truly believe if we really understand the way that christ has compassion that type of compassion for us and his kindness to us to meet us in that then we would know that we can survive it we can be we can sit in the painful suffering fear rejection abandonment loneliness hurt all of those things shame a big one that where we feel that ooh i don't know if i can push through this i don't know if i can sit in this but christ and so knowing that connection with him that he's gone through those same things and yet he provides a way for us and a healing for us in it it's almost i i kind of refer to that um i don't even know that going out a bear hunt book 
you know, going, <laughs> going on, on a bear, bear hunt. And, and then when they get to a river and they're like, I can't go over it, can't go under it, can't go around it, gotta go through it. So this sense of being in that emotion is just utterly scary and painful. And yet Christ provides a way to be in that and not only survive it, but heal through it. And that really gives us learning, you know, his refusal to remain indifferent when we see people suffering, even if it's because of their own sin, then we can look on that and have compassion Mm -hmm. and feel something within ourself that knows that same feeling and look upon them with love and see them in a new way, the way Christ sees us and prayerfully to love them well. Thank you. That was a really wonderful answer, Morgan. Um, I love your perspective on, on how that changes um, and what we learn from his refusal to remain indifferent. So all of these sections, they continue to talk about as just as Morgan was saying, the compassionate nature of Jesus, they, he feels that really deeply. And I think that that's continually expressed in his friendship with sinners. Um, Ortland talks about this and he uses the verse Matthew eleven nineteen, which says a friend of tax collectors and sinners, which a lot of times when we hear people say it in the Bible, they're saying it like as a negative connotation, like it's a bad thing that Jesus was friends with tax collectors and sinners. But I mean, that's, that's who we are. We're, we're sinners. And I like that Ortland said, um, in Jesus Christ, we are given a friend who will always enjoy rather than refuse our presence. There is a companion whose embrace of us does not strengthen or weaken depending on how clean or unclean, how attractive or revolting, how faithful or fickle we presently are. I think so oftentimes I'm just, I'm in a mood and I don't want to know what's going on. Um, I can be selfish as a friend and, and that's what we are as human friends. We are imperfect and we are going to care about these things, but it says that he doesn't and, and it doesn't matter again, like it doesn't matter what state we're in. He still wants us to come to him. He is a friend who deeply knows us and loves us in a way that no one else can. And we should spend time with him. Like we would a friend. When I first had that revelation, when I was early in college, that was mind blowing to me. Mm-hmm. Like we should spend time with God as a friend. Like I don't just need to sit down and pray my axe prayer every single time. <laughs> I should do like I could do more things than that. I could think about that relationship mm-hmm. outside of that. And I, I liked that Ortland made it clear that it's a mutual pursuit. That it's not just God is seeking to have a relationship with me. That I am also seeking to have a relationship with Him. That it. It's it's both of us in it together. So Amber and then Morgan, I'm really interested. What have you done recently with your friend, Jesus? Well, I would say one of the things that I've always enjoyed are long walks. I like to walk and pray and think, and I do like to be in nature. Mm-hmm. I like to sit and to observe. And, and that's a lot of times where I have that contemplation time, prayer time, have experienced the Lord saying things to me and combined with scripture, you know, those times when he just lights up what you read in scripture and you know that, that he's using that exactly applied to me personally. And it's undeniable mm-hmm. 
that that's a, a very personal touch, not just sort of a generic one. And but I have found that recently as life is busy and worries come and there's many things I'm concerned about in life, whether it be about myself or my family or people around me or whatever, that those long walks can turn into more thinking my thoughts towards God. And a lot of times they're processing type of thoughts Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to get them in some type of order versus truly believing that, that he has something for me to listen to, I guess. And I no longer, I do not enjoy those long walks as much. I don't come back from them as refreshed Mm -hmm. when it's just me sort of thinking out loud. Um, But I do when I think of it more as a conversation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's very hard for me because I am introspective. I do like to think a lot. I do like to examine my thoughts a lot. It's hard for me not to think that I carry the conversation, so to speak, Mm -hmm. that the Lord has something to say to me that I may not have even (laughs) thought of or have, I wouldn't have even begun the thought that it's completely outside of me. And, and so that's just been something I've been contemplating. Like, I think you said it was surprising to you that in some ways that not only does the Lord pursue relationship with us, but we should pursue relationship Mm -hmm. with him. I think recently to me, it's been something to say, no, it's not just about my pursuit of relationship with the Lord. It's the fact that the Lord pursues me and he does it in a way that I may not have any comprehension of. That may surprise me. I mean, of course, there are particular ways that he asks us to engage with Mm -hmm. him. Absolutely. But sometimes I think I take too much credit for sort of, you know, holding the relationship, making the relationship move forward or whatever, instead of believing he does. So I do love long walks. Mm -hmm. I am learning to listen and enjoy. Um, sitting outside and then like I said before scripture is important in that because he really does speak in some preciously uniquely personal ways through scripture yeah long walks was always my one of my favorite things in college and I felt like this I don't know this may be silly or simple but one of the things that I always felt like was God pursuing me is if maybe I hadn't spent that time with him in a while where I was more enjoying his company I would a lot of times wake up like early in the morning with a stomach ache and I would go for a walk and spend time with God and that happened regularly to me when I was talking about earlier that season of life that was in the last episode that season of life that was really really difficult and it felt hard to go to class like I miss a lot of class and that was one of the things those walks with the Lord were one of the things that anchored me during that time I do love long walks. Oh, I love to walk on the canal. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's it's very refreshing to just walk through nature. And every time, even though I walk the same route most days, mm. I see different things. And, and So anyways, it's just, it's really fun for me. A, a couple of kind of, I would maybe categorize this as a little cheesy. but mm-hmm. <laughs> So I, my mission for the past like year has been to try to grow grass in my backyard. And I feel like that being, I, I just love to be outside anyway. So being outside in the yard is like a sweet time for me to be with the Lord and kind of dialoguing with him about this and just thinking through some of the verses that talk about where the seed falls. And I've got parts of my yard that have soft ground and have parts of my yard that have tough ground. If anybody's listening out there who knows anything about any of this, please call me. Hit me up. Yeah. But um, 
I went to the women's the Gospel Coalition women's, women's Conference two weeks ago, and I had planted all this seed, and it rained while I was gone, and I came home and I just my yard exploded with grass. P.S. I think this grass is going to die because it's the wrong grass, but. When I got home and I saw this grass had just exploded in my yard, I thought, God gardened my yard while I was gone. The Lord planted and watered my <laughs> seed, and now I have grass. And y'all, I'm so thankful for that because I have three dogs, and if they go out in a muddy yard, they come in with muddy feet, and it gets everywhere. So I was just so grateful. So little ways like that... Um, you know, restoring things in my house mm -hmm. is is something as well. Um, but I would say in probably more of a, a powerful way or, or a deep way, a way that I feel like is only a way that I can truly know personally um, is in my work. So as a therapist, therapy can be a lonely work. Mm -hmm. There's confidentiality, strict confidentiality guidelines. Uh, there are some things that I process with people that are so hard and only only I know what I'm doing all day and those things I can't take outside of my work and process with other people. Um, so uh, Christ's presence in that with me and dialoguing with him, I found myself more recently just having a conversation with him about these other people um, who have entrusted me with their story and the deep things of their life, um, things that I can't handle on my own, and God showing up to just say, I'm doing the work, give it to me, and and go with me in it. And that's been just a really sweet friendship to me mm -hmm. um, in, in the work that I do, in that loneliness, just feeling... Mm -hmm. Like I'm not so alone in it because the Lord is alongside and actually leading the way and promoting whatever change needs to occur in the, the restorative work that he does. And it's a privilege to witness that, but more at a personal level, it's a privilege to not be alone in that. Well, I love the fact that you bring up both of those. One seems small. It's the grass in your backyard. One seems big. It's big issues but they're both very particular to you. Mm -hmm. And just those tender places that the Lord relates to us as individuals, those sweet little gifts in life, those deep places that nobody else knows about. Those are two great descriptions. And it's like, yes, he does <laughs> do that. Yes, I love that. We're trying to go grow grass in our backyard too right now. And actually Ben's dad owns a sod company, so maybe oh, he can really? uh, oh. talk to you about Thank the you, hard Lord. places. <laughs> uh, so in the same way that Christ comes alongside us and becomes our companion. So does the Holy Spirit come into our lives. And so when when Christ was going up into heaven, he says to his disciples in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. And so that's telling us that the Holy Spirit's role in our lives is as the helper. And Ortland says the Spirit simply causes our apprehension of Christ's heartful love to soar closer to what it actually is, which is not a way that I had thought about that before, that we have apprehension of Christ's hopeful love and that the Spirit's role is to bring it closer 
to what it actually is. And he elaborates on this later. He says, the spirit has been given to us in order that we might know way down deep. So he's saying here that we're going to feel it, right? The endless grace of the heart of God. The spirit loves nothing more than to awaken and calm and soothe, soothe us with the heart knowledge of what we have been graced with. So he's reminding us of Christ's great heart of longing and affection for us. Um, and the spiritual in that is to make us experience that heart. There's a lot of focus on experience and feeling there from the Holy Spirit. So Ortland says, the spirit causes us to actually feel Christ's heart for us. Can you tell me a little bit about how you have experienced this? The biggest evidence for me of experiencing Christ's heart for me is when I'm able to love other people well. I think of the, the Spirit as being the one who gives me the capacity for that kind of love mm -hmm. because I know there's nothing good in me that wants to love well, especially when people are doing things that are not lovely. Mm -hmm. um, and so whenever I see that I'm able to give that type of love someone else, that is a direct reflection upon the spirit that is loving through me. Um, I think of the spirit as being the one who unstops that dam of sin that keeps me from receiving his love. And when I see that love poured out, I know, I know he did it through me. I love that. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That's different than maybe what we sometimes tend to go to is like, do I feel it just for me versus, mm -hmm. wow, I really have this love towards somebody else. And the outworking of what you've been given and to realize that that is an indicator to you of the reality of it. I hadn't thought about it that way. Uh, I think for me, when you were saying that, I thought recently obedience has become more of a grace to me. And it's always become this, it had always before been this burden, like this thing that I was supposed to do. And I hadn't considered before that obedience is actually an action of the Lord's love to me to, to, to instruct me in the way to go so that life would be good, uh, mm -hmm. to protect me, to, make things fruitful and so obedience was that kind of hard thing I did I'd rather have a, a nice feeling about something um, and not that feeling is bad because I think, think feeling is great I just hadn't anticipated that coming from something like obedience that's so interesting well the next um, the last little portion of this section of the book focuses on God as merciful so just as it is important to understand the role of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, as we've been talking about, it's also important to understand the role of God the Father. So like I said, the last three sections focused on God's mercy. And 2 Corinthians 1.3 is really a verse that he focuses on a lot throughout this part of the book. It says, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And that is not really how I grew up thinking about the father as being the father of mercies and God of all comfort. There is much more harshness to him there. And Ortland reminds us, this is why I just love that he, how he talks about this. He reminds us that Jesus is the manifestation of God and that we see his heart displayed in the gospels. We are seeing the very compassion and tenderness of who God himself most deeply is. I had just not thought of that connection there before between, between God and Jesus he continues on and says, He is the Father of mercies. He is not cautious in his tenderness toward you. He multiplies mercies matched to your every need, and there is nothing he would rather do. 
I think I tend to believe that that mercy is going to run out. And that's something that he continues to talk about how mercies are multiplied to match my every need. I'm not going to, I'm not going to reach a sin threshold and then have to pay more like, you know, your water bill or depending on how much water you use, like that's, that's not how, how this works. Like he is a God of mercies and he multiplies them. It's not going to run out. Um, and that's, like I said, not naturally how I would think of him, it, which he kind of starts to address. And that's brought up in Lamentation 3, 33, which says he does not afflict from the heart. Cause that would be my more natural thing is to think of God as being afflicting. Mm-hmm. Um, the phrase from his heart is probably the most important part here, um, which is what Ortland focuses on a lot. He says that he brings affliction with, quote, a certain divine reluctance, implying that 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 is a part of God, but it might not be his most natural disposition. Um, he, Ortland says, but when he comes to show mercy to manifest that it is his nature and disposition. It is said that he does it with his whole heart. There is no reluctance in him. And I think he comes up with a really a great way that he, he pulls this from Isaiah 28 one, but I like these terms that he uses to talk about mercy and justice in Ortland refers to mercy as God's natural work and justice as God's strange work. Not that they're both not works of God, just one is more natural and one is less natural to him. Um, in Exodus 34, 6, um, Ortland uses this passage again to talk about a little bit more about who God is. That verse says, A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And he says that that is talking to us purely about who God is. Portland says this tells us that the bent of God's heart is mercy. His glory is goodness. His glory is his lowliness. So he's more naturally. I mean, the bent of his heart is mercy. It's not to be angry. And I just, that is so cool and so profound to me. Um, So I'd really love to hear more about what you guys think about this idea of mercy as God's natural work and justice as his strange work? And how does that conflict with any ideas you've previously held about God? We can think of God as we sometimes think of a court judge where a kind judge compelled by law sentences a man to death with tears and apologies. God is a righteous judge and is never at cross purposes within himself. There is nothing in his justice which forbids the exercise of his mercy. His mercy flows out of his goodness, and his goodness without justice is not goodness. So God spares us because he is good, but he could not be good if he were not just. Um, And so those are some of the ideas that I've um, gleaned from Tozer and a few others. But Anselm, archbishop of and theologian, says it this way. When God punishes the wicked, it is just because it is consistent with their deserts. And when he spares the wicked, it is just because it is compatible with his goodness. So God does what becomes him as the supremely good God. And so he always acts as himself and mm-hmm. can't act otherwise. Mm-hmm. And whatever he does is right. Yes. Thank you for, yes. Thank you for clarifying that, Vanessa. Yeah. And that verse you pulled out from Lamentations, Portland makes the point that that 
book is perfectly aligned so that that verse is dead center. Mm -hmm. And lamentation speaks a lot to just the grieving and the woe that's come with as a result of God's righteous judgment. Mm -hmm. And so he's very much affirming, the author of lamentation is very much affirming that affliction does come from the hand Mm -hmm. of God, but he makes that point that it doesn't come from his heart. And like you said, Vanessa, it's not that he has to do it but doesn't want to. But I think maybe we think of it, it doesn't delight him in the sense of the, the, the pain that's caused in and of itself is not the delight. The justice is mm-hmm. yes, the delight, yes. and he doesn't turn from those two things. And I think sometimes when we think, so often I hear people conflicted, and I can experience this confliction myself. And someone just said it to me the other day. I know it gives me such comfort to know that the Lord could never have caused that suffering or would never participate in that suffering. And you understand why someone would want to think that because the way we think of it sort of is we're so, we make decisions based off our emotions so often. If it feels right, we do it. If it doesn't feel right, we don't do it. And we assume that God is the same, that he, his feelings are tied directly in that sense to his actions. So the assumption is if he afflicts me, then he delights to afflict me, you know, versus that there's actually pain in that affliction. So Jesus outside of Jerusalem, weeping over the desolation that he knew was coming, that he brought injustice. And yet he also bore the exact same type of affliction for us. So to have that sort of mournful, that weeping over that, and yet at the same time, upholding that justice completely, uh, has been helpful to me to to think about in those places that the Lord has both. That's super helpful, Amber, because as you're saying that, I'm thinking about the servant psalms, Isaiah, where scripture says it pleased the father to crush him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, of course it didn't please him to, uh, you know, hurt his son. It wasn't that he was getting joy out of causing him pain, but the right. justice, the reconciliation mm-hmm. yeah. that came through that. Mm-hmm. And so not from his heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really will appreciate the point that both you guys brought up that he does still take pleasure in justice, that it's not, not that that isn't still true. Um, I think I know for me that I need to start retraining my thoughts to believe that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger I know that that mercy jumps out to me because I have for so for the first half of my life believed fully in the justice and the mercy was just kind of like a background part. Um, I want to, as Orland says, as we talked about in the last episode, replace my dark thoughts of God with biblical truth, that natural resistance that I have to know who God is. I want to fight that. Um, and I love this quote from Orland. I just want to, I want to finish here with this. And this says, there is no termination date on God's commitment to you. You can't get rid of his grace to you. You can't outrun his mercy. You can't evade his goodness. His heart is set on you. And aren't we so glad it is. Thank you for joining us for our second discussion of Gentle and Lowly. We hope you will join us again on the first Friday of next month. Sit us next to you while you soak up some sun or invite us to join you for a bowl of ice cream. 
We will be discussing chapters 17 through 23 and a God who is rich in mercy, who loved us then, who loves us now, who will love us to the end, and in whose heart we are buried forevermore. We hope you will listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sees. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of pure shining to cheer it after the rain.